Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm Partner and Head of Education at Shakespeare Martineau. Today's episode looks at a recent case uh, involving intellectual property in a university and I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleague Andrew Hartshorn, a partner in our commercial and IP team, to discuss this. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. So we're going to look at the issues that arise out of a case which involved Oxford University Innovations Limited, which has some really interesting implications for universities more generally. Um, the case, which many of our listeners will be familiar with now, rose out of a claim for royalties by Oxford Innovations, who for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to call the university. Um, and that related to a license of some patents uh, for a compact super resolution imaging device, which had been developed by the university and which was being commercialized by uh, Oxford Nano Imaging Limited, who again, for the purposes of avoiding any confusion in this podcast, we're going to call the company. The non-payment of royalties was really only the subtext for a much larger dispute. And that was the extent to which the university owned the patents in the first place. And the key issue here was the extent to which the university was able to claim ownership of inventions made by Mr. Bo Jing, who was initially a research intern and then a PhD student at the university. And the case raised some interesting questions about terms related to intellectual property uh, that universities can agree with their um, research and other degree students relating to the fruits of their work they produce whilst they're at the university. So it's relevant to all academic research institutions, uh, whether they employ insta interns or have doctoral or other students undertaking or proposing to undertake research, which then turns out to be of commercial value. Um, I think what was particularly interesting for a non-IP practitioner, from my point of view, was the fact that the judge also had to consider the extent to which students were considered to be consumers under the various consumer protection laws and uh, the approach to uh, evaluating any alleged unfairness where there were contracts in the terms of the contracts that the university had with such students. And this is really the first time that the English courts have had to consider the impacts of consumer protection law or even their applicability on terms relating to the IPR rights of uh, students. So Andrew, what was the background to this case? Well, the company was spun out of the university to commercialize a nanoimager. This is a compact, super-resolution, high-performance microscope, which um, was to be able to detect E. coli and other pathogens in a single molecule fluorescent biosensing array. Really, really clever, high-powered bit of kit. Not quite as ambitious as Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, but this product actually did work. Early prototypes of the device were made in the physics lab of Professor Achilles Kapanidis, who is an Oxford professor. However, the bulk of the development work, which led to the patents, was undertaken by Mr. Uh, Bo Jing, Mr. Jing. He first worked with Professor, uh, in Professor Kapanidis' lab as an employed intern between February and October 2013, and then as a PhD DPhil researcher um, from 2013 until May 2016. When the technology was spun out of the university into the company, Mr. Jing became the chief technology officer and is now chief executive of the company, having left the university without completing his DPhil to focus on the commercial development of the nanoimager. So what were the company and the university arguing about? Well, the, the company um, stopped paying royalties 
Um, and the reason they gave, uh, which was effectively Mr. Jing's argument, was that the license that the university had granted to the company was invalid because the university did not own the patents covered by the license in the first place and that these were effectively owned by Mr. Jing. Right. Um, this meant that the court had to consider two specific areas. The first was how the law and the university's policies around intellectual property ownership applied to interns. And the second and the topic for today was the ownership of intellectual property rights created during Mr. Jing's defil. And in particular, whether, as you said, whether Mr. Jing was a consumer for the purposes of UK consumer protection law. And if he was a consumer, whether the university's policies and procedures were fair in the treatment of students. The judge had the pleasure of having to wade through both European and UK consumer protection legislation in coming to his decision. So he saved us the trouble of, of doing that thinking. And his decision, set up, set up over some 65 pages of reasoning, is that DPhil students are normally entitled to be treated as a consumer. And it doesn't matter for this purpose whether the student is undertaking that educational qualification with a view to advancing his career, his profession, or other professional advancement. They are a consumer. Okay. Now, the university pushed back against this, advanced some arguments to the effect that Mr. Jing's specific role meant that he shouldn't be considered a consumer. These were all ultimately rejected by the judge, but they included things such as the fact that Mr. Jing had worked as a research scientist for over four years, the fact that Mr. Jing proactively contacted the professor to inquire about the possibility of working as his lab because of Professor Kapanidis' specific expertise and experience in this area, the fact that before starting his, his uh, DPhil, he worked as a paid intern and the work that carried, was carried on during the internship carried over into the DPhil and they were similar in nature. So whilst the, his status changed, the substance of his work didn't. The fact that he undertook the DPhil because of the professional opportunities that might be uh, afforded to him and the fact that he was receiving funding from the university for tuition and college fees and was received £1,300 a month as a stipend. All of these were rejected by the judge in his assessment that Mr. Jing was a consumer for the purposes of consumer protection law. But the judge then went on to consider whether the terms of the university's contract with the uh, PhD student were unfair. And that's um, a crucial test for these purposes, isn't it? So again, to remind listeners of, of what the test is before we go on to look at what happened in this particular case, uh, it's a test that applies to terms that have not been individually negotiated, uh, where the where contrary to the requirements of good faith, they create a significant imbalance in the party's rights and obligations under the contract to the detriment of the consumer. And when you're evaluating this, uh, the 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 um, the test needs to look at all the circumstances around the conclusion of the contract, the terms of the contract, and any other contracts uh, that it's depend the, the the contract in question is dependent on. So quite a wide range of things to be thought about there. So so what did the judge decide in applying the test in this case, Andrew? So the judge held that when evaluating good faith and also whether the terms create a significant imbalance between the parties, you have to consider two things. The first is whether the term in question is not only capable of being implied and fairly because of the way it might be drafted, but whether it is actually applied and fairly. And secondly, whether at the time the contract was made between the student and the university, whether the student in question had reason to believe that the terms, insofar as they were flexible, would be operated or unfairly or would be used in ways which were unreasonable. So merely because it's possible to think of situations in which a particular set of terms may be 
interpreted, operated or implied in an unfair way, it doesn't follow automatically that terms are unfair, particularly if, as applied to this individual, Mr Jing, they operated fairly and there was no evidence that they had in fact operated unfairly against anyone else. The judge helpfully summarised seven rules that a university needs to take into consideration when assessing whether the IP clauses or any clauses in a PhD contract pass the unfairness test. The first is the effect of the IP clauses as part of the contract as a whole. All relevant terms must be considered. Yeah. Secondly, the impact of the terms must be considered broadly and from both sides. You don't just look at it narrowly from the university side or from the consumer side. You look at it in the context of, of the relationship as a whole. Thirdly, you must take account of whether provisions favouring the the university as a signee of the intellectual property rights may also indirectly serve the interest of the PhD student, for example, by making more readily available student places for research, as well as facilities, you know, assistance with spin-out formation, all of those sorts of things, which enable the, the, the spin-out or the university and the student together to exploit the, the rights that are being developed, as well as any benefits that flow from their exploitation. In other words, is the um, income that's being developed from this being shared with yeah. the students? You know, how would the, what would the position have been without the term in question? What does national law in and of itself uh, apply? Is the university acting in good faith? Is it deliberately or unconsciously trying to take advantage of the PhD student's lack of experience or unfamiliarity with, with contracts, their weak bargaining position and similar circumstances? Okay. Six, do the terms depart from what an average, well-informed PhD student would expect, you know, are they par for the course or is the university doing something different? And finally, would that term have been agreed if it had been individually negotiated? If you sat down from scratch and said, okay, what are we going to agree? Would the, would the PhD student have said, yes, of course, that's fine. But so those that, are seven things. Sorry. Okay. No, no, that, that that's great. Thank you, Andrew. And, and I think before we go on to have a look at what would the specific terms in this case were, it's just worthwhile reflecting on the fact that that's a really sophisticated and nuanced analysis and it does just show um, that if you get into court on these issues uh, the courts will carry out that quite forensic analysis of the of the circumstances and the context and so on which I think is both reassuring and also potentially a threat for institutions so so anyway what did uh, the university's terms in this case say and were they unfair well, the university's terms were, were quite wide in claiming ownership to, to intellectual property rights. The overriding provision in this case was, was Section 5, which provided that the university claimed ownership of all intellectual property that was devised, created, made by the students in the course of or incidental to their studies, including patentable and non-patentable inventions. That's really wide. So basically yeah. anything yeah. they write, anything they do, is owned by the university as a starting yeah. point. Um, the university also very widely claimed ownership of works created with the aid of university facilities, including films, videos, photographs, multimedia, um, and laboratory notebooks. And also any university commission works not previously explicitly covered. So again, <laughs> very, very, very wide. Right. Um, there were some specific exemptions saying that they weren't going to uh, claim ownership of things such as copyright in artistic works that they hadn't listed above, um, you know, books, articles, plays, lyrics, scores or lectures, 
unless they were specifically commissioned. But, not, but that's not likely to benefit Mr. Jing terribly much. Not, in this case. Not, not, not particularly helpfully. You know, he he had basically signed his life away according to how the how the the, the terms were were, were written. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, since um, Mr. Jing brought his, his claim, or since his contract was signed by the university, the university had changed its terms to provide that the university only claimed ownership of IPR made by a student in four situations, where the student was created the IPR jointly, working with somebody else who, who had agreed to transfer the IPR to, to the university. So that would be where they're working with a, a professor whose employment contract meant that anything that he created was owned by the by the university. Okay. Um, where the invention was made using university's facilities or equipment. So if you're going into a lab and using that the particular lab to, to do your um, invention, then that would come across to the university, unless the terms of access to those facilities said otherwise. So again, it provided a, 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 a fair get out. Yeah. Um, where the IPR was subject to obligations that the university owes to a third party. So if it was grant funded and as part of the grant, the university had to transfer ownership to a third party or it was funded by industry, then again, that that yeah. would uh, override the, uh, the student's ownership of it. Or fourthly, where the IPR was created using funding from the university. So if the university was paying for it, as you would expect for somebody paying for something to be created for or you, the university would, would own it. So there's a real uh, seismic shift in the way that uh, the university was trying to grab ownership of IPR or how it dealt with IPR um, with its uh, students. And the new pr provisions were pretty much in response to student behaviour driven by this perceived IP land grab in, in the old provisions that students were not creating stuff while they were at the university. They were doing it, you know, saving up their ideas until after they'd left. They weren't sharing ideas. It was driving the wrong behaviours. So the university, to try to, to remedy this and to try to become uh, more engaged with students, you know, changed its its terms to probably those that were more prevalent, I think, in the, in the, in the university sector. So the judge then considered how Oxford University, in comparison with other research in universities, shared the benefits of those contributing to the invention whether as individuals or part of a team. Again, there's 20 pages of analysis here, but, but the judge did flag one, flag one key point. And that was, whilst other universities generally confined their claim to, to rights where there was a collaboration um, always made with university facilities, um, the Oxford original IP provision claimed ownership of all IP, you know, made by the students, effectively while they were at the university, yeah. which was out of kilter. He didn't think that this meant that terms were unfair in and of themselves because the terms and the way the university, in particular, the way the university applied the terms provided a reasonable share of benefits to researchers and uh, PSU students. And that was a, and also provided a reasonable approach to sharing the benefits between the researchers and the means of challenging that allocation. So there was a, effectively, whilst it felt unfair prima facie on how it was written, actually the way it was put into practice was a fair and equitable solution. The judge also held that the university was acting in good faith. The judge, it's really interesting, the judge specifically made reference to the fact that the university changed their terms after Mr. Jing signed his contract, which to me is, is astounding to say that, you know, it's, 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 you signed it to unfair terms, but because of something that after you signed, actually it wasn't there in the first place, but yeah. that's fine. Um, he, he felt the university wasn't intending to take advantage of Mr. Jing or any um, PhD students' lack of commercial acumen, but, but was trying to do the right thing, but just got the language wrong. And they were overbroad, but didn't mean to be that. And the new terms had addressed that. And there was no evidence that the old terms, the unfair, you know, potentially unfair terms, had ever been applied in a way that was to the detriment of students. 
So it's a really fascinating analysis. Um, but in terms of the sort of practical steps that universities should take in light of the judgment, I, I suppose it's it's the obvious things like reviewing terms of business that you have with all individuals for postgraduate studies to ensure that they follow those rules around fairness and good faith, and not just in relation to the IPR provisions, but in all aspects. I, I think this is right, but, but be aware that there's, there is no one-size-fits-all approach here. The judge explicitly recognised there are two very different ends of a spectrum of policies, starting at one end with a policy of maximum benefits for the individual researchers, with the view of incentivising them, whether they're student or employee, to devoting greater effort to producing commercialisable research and establishing startup companies, to one which rewards less and incentivises researchers to focus on more fundamental and, one assumes, less profitable research. It's up to the university to adopt its position and draft its terms to suit. So that's that's a very refreshing reminder that universities have some autonomy here and they can reflect their uh, particular circumstances and that the courts will will uphold that that sort of diversity of thinking. Are there any final thoughts on this, Andrew? Well, yeah, we've just had a decision on costs. So in an argument over royalties worth £700,000, the company who, who effectively lost has just been hit with an inter interim costs order of £900,000 thousand pounds wow this is in addition to their own costs which i would assume are of a similar magnitude you know if a, if the judgment had gone the other way the university would have been been faced with a similar costs consequence which is great for the lawyers but how much research could you have done with that amount of money quite absolutely thanks very much for sharing your thoughts andrew and thanks to you for listening we hope you join us next time so don't forget to hit the subscribe button and if you like what you've heard please do leave a review. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.